Well, good morning. I will just fire a warning shot across the bow. This is not going to be a fun sermon. The reason I say that is it's not a fun text. <laughs> My assigned text is Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Yeah, what's fun about that? Nothing. It's not about the resurrection. It's not a Pauline charge to live the Christian faith and to live the Christian life. It's not an instructional text like in 1st and 2nd Timothy. It's a narrative about our Savior and what He endured. And I can tell you, He endured a whole lot more than the cross. And we can see it in this text, but we tend to fall short of really examining Scripture. And, and what we tend to do is just kind of read the black and white or black and red words of Jesus and kind of do the checks in the boxes. Okay, he was in the upper room. Check. Okay, he crossed the Kidron Valley and went into Gethsemane. Check. Okay, he went before the Sanhedrin. Check. He went before Pilate. Check. All the way to the cross, all the way to the resurrection, and we kind of go, okay, cool. We serve a risen Savior. But we fail more often than not, to read between the lines and to really try to see the canvas in which those words are written. And we fail to really try to put ourselves in Jesus' place. We saw a video of Andrew. Uh, you know, We've got Andrew, our preacher, and several people from here gone this week because they're over in Israel uh, walking in the footsteps of the Savior, apparently even sailing like the Savior possibly did. But I'm asking us here this morning, we need to put our feet in the Savior's sandals. Because He endured more than the cross. And we're going to see it in the narrative, and the narrative speaks for itself. There's not a whole lot of history background that needs to be revealed. The Greek pretty much, or the English translation, translation that I'm reading from pretty much is spot on word for word. So there's not a whole lot of historical, cultural context. There's not a whole lot of breakdown the linguistic and the, the linguistic context as much as it is. Here's the story. Can you see it? Can you see the painting? Can you see the canvas of the father-willed story being painted beyond the words that we read? So in that, if you have your scriptures this morning, either on uh, your devices or actually maybe some of you are holier and bring your Bibles to church, maybe we can dive into God's Word together because I am an old school preacher. I don't like PowerPoint. I'm not professorial like Andrew, our main preacher. I'm old school. Let's go to the text. Let's get on our devices and let's read it together. In John chapter 18, is our text this morning, our main text. And it says in verse 12, this is after Jesus has had His last supper. He's crossed over the Kidron Valley. He's been in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. He's been arrested. Andrew talked about that last week. I'm picking up the ball and moving forward a little bit. And in verse 12, it says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. 
Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now I want you to hit a pause button there because Andrew's going to expound on Peter's denial later on in our sermon series. But for the sake of this morning, I'd like for you to just move on down to verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. That's all we get from the story before the Sanhedrin in John's Gospel. But that's not where the story ends before anything of the Sanhedrin. Now, before we get to our next text, which picks up where John left off, the question is, why was Jesus taken to Annas and not Caiaphas? Because Caiaphas was the high priest that year. Well, if you notice in the text who Caiaphas was compared to Annas, it was his son-in-law. So why are you taking the guy who is the high priest, the son-in-law, why are you taking him to a guy who is not the high priest, who is the father-in-law? Well, in 15 AD, Caiaphas got removed from power, or Annas, sorry, got removed from power in Israel. Romans came in, didn't really like how Annas was kind of running the show, and they removed him. Three years later, they give his son-in-law his job. How many of you dads would like for that to happen? You're working your way. You've built your career. You marry your daughter away, right? And you think, y'all go start your life. And you're still doing yours, and then you get relieved from power, and you're kind of like, I don't like this. This Roman occupation thing isn't cool. This new boss, I don't like these new bosses. And then you wake up one morning, come in, and you see your son-in-law now sitting in your chair having your job. See, probably most historians kind of fall on the fact that more than likely what had happened was there was still pretty much loyalists to Annas. Now, he got removed. They just gave it to his son-in-law. We're going to take it to him. He's, he's the guy really in charge. He's the guy really behind the money. You want to know who was in charge of the temple exchange with the currencies at time at Passover and different festivals of the year? Annas. So do you think Annas really liked this Jesus guy who comes in and kicks over tables and turns them over and spends time taking a, a whip called the cat of nine tails and clearing tables, ending his business transactions that day? Do you think Annas appreciated that about Jesus? Probably not. So why would they take him to Annas? My guess would be this old boy's been boiling for a while. This Jesus guy. Now we finally got him. Oh yeah, we're going to take care of business. I'm going to make sure that it gets done. 
and I want to look this old boy in the face before I send him to my son-in-law. Starts to paint that canvas a little better, doesn't it? A little bit more detail, a little bit more understanding, a little bit more wickedness being revealed. But the story where John tends to kind of end his story before the Sanhedrin, Mark kind of focuses on this time before the Sanhedrin. So if you have your Bibles and you got them open to John, let's go ahead and turn back a few pages and let's get into Mark's Gospel. Because Mark's Gospel picks up pretty much where this portion of the story ends for John. And in John chapter 14, it, it, or Mark chapter 14, it'll be in verse 53. So Mark 14, 53, it says, they took Jesus to the high priest. There's your reference. The high priest. They still call Annas the high priest, even though he wasn't that year. We do the same tradition ourselves. When we say President uh, Bush or Clinton or uh, Obama, we still call them president, even though they are not in office. So they take him to the office of the high priest, being Annas, and then it says all the chief priests, which Caiaphas would be wrapped into that group, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the anthrakia, which is the charcoal fire. Keep that charcoal fire nugget. Because Andrew's going to bring some more of that to light come after Easter into the resurrection appearances. But I want you to remember, he's at a charcoal fire keeping himself warm. Verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave false testimony against him. We have heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days I will build another not made by man. Yet even then, their testimonies didn't agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you. But here's something I hope no one in this room ever experiences. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Every great teacher is always quiet during the test. But when you are calling out on God and you are trying to figure things out and you feel the silence of judgment, I hope no one ever feels that from this room. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, if you think Jesus isn't calculated, stand by. Verse 62, I am, Jesus said, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Pause button. Notice how he ends it right there. No more. I'm not saying another word to you guys. I'm answering your question, and I'm giving you a statement, and I'm done. Yep, I am who you said I am, and one day you're going to see me standing at the hand of the mighty, right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
I have nothing else to say to you. The high priest tore his clothes. Here comes the dramatic moment. May he ever be a Hamilton type of scholar of a theater. Oh, let me tear my cloth. Let me signify how unrighteous this is and say, why do you need more witnesses? He asked, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think signifying to the rest of the gang? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. It's kind of an interesting story, and I'll tell you, it's not really fun. <laughs> it's kind of hard to think that, you know, not much has changed in 2,000 years of history, has it? As I was preparing for this sermon for a while, I really kind of asked a question that, uh, I'll be honest, I, I, I asked God to maybe take me more so into my right brain this sermon than rather I'm comfortable with and get me out of my left brain checking boxes. And he answered that prayer. I'm here to tell you, it's been a struggle for a while. The last couple of weeks, because you start to, when you really start to put yourselves into the Savior's sandals and try to envision and feel what he felt, it hurts. But if we don't do that, how can we fully appreciate what he's done for us? It's not just reading the text and going, well, that's it. Thanks, God. And, and that's it. We suffer with him. But how can you understand the sufferings of Christ if you yourself don't even try to put yourself there? And I'm not a guy that really likes to go there. I'll be honest. But in this story, he goes before this group of men, this group of men who apparently were supposed to know the Scriptures better than anybody, who were in charge of temple treasury. They were the money workers. And then he takes them and he sees their greed. He sees their jealousy. You back up a few pages and you realize Jesus raises a man, Lazarus, from the dead. And the next sentence says, and from that moment on, they plotted to kill him. What? He brings a guy back to life. Everybody's sobbing. This should be a joyous moment. And these guys go, uh-uh. He's going down. Jesus faced so much more than the cross. And in getting preparation for this sermon, trying to wrap my head around, what is he feeling? God took me to Moses. And not, I went, why am I needing to go? Why am I, God, why are you telling me to read the story of the Exodus all over again? And I started reading the story. And there's this guy, Moses. Now, if, you're, if, if maybe you don't know much about the Bible, maybe you're new to Christianity, and maybe you've just heard the name Moses, maybe you never have. But in the second book of your Bible, in the, in the book of Exodus, there's this story written about the guy named Moses. Now, he's kind of becomes the man who really becomes the face of Israel for the while. He's not the father. Your Old Testament and your New Testaments will make sure that this guy named Abraham is the father of the faith. But Moses comes along, right? 
And there's all of the Hebrew nation is enslaved in Israel. And they're praying for a deliverer. And what happens? God gives them a deliverer. But they don't like how this deliverer apparently conducted business. They were so focused on Moses the man that they could not see the will of the Father and they couldn't see God working in everything. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, I'll do my best Charlton Heston, let my people go. (laughs) Fun fact, he wasn't carrying a 12-gauge like Charlton Heston. This is very much just, you know... 3,500 years ago, nothing but a staff, right? And he throws the staff down, and it turns into a snake. And everybody goes, yeah, big deal. And these other musicians that were of Pharaoh threw down their staff, and there's snakes all over the place, but Moses' staff, like, ate all of them. And this wasn't a good enough sign, apparently. So he comes back, turns all the water in Egypt into blood. A fun story. And you're going, yeah, what would happen if all the water turned to blood? Well, scientifically speaking, the fish would die. You got dead fish everywhere. What's going to happen? You got blood for water everywhere. What's going to happen? All the plagues happen right after that. The cattle die. The live, all the livestock dies. All the fish dies. What's that bring? It'll bring you some maggots. It'll bring you frogs. It'll bring you flies. It'll bring all the natural elements start coming in. And people still can't see God is working. All they want to do is focus on the man of Moses. And then finally, God says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come down to Israel myself. And everybody goes, "Uh uh-oh. And he goes, Moses, I want you to kill a lamb. Tell everybody to kill a little lamb. Take that blood of the lamb. Put it on the doorway of their houses. And I'm going to pass through. And if I don't find blood on those doorways, I'm killing the firstborn. And so at our time of Passover, they put the blood on the doors and God passed over Egypt and He went into every house that didn't have blood over the door and He struck down their firstborn, including Pharaoh's. Here's the kicker. God never apologized for it. He's a different God that you may not understand. But when He's going to strike someone down, He does not apologize for it. And He strikes down the firstborn enough to where Pharaoh, with his hardened heart, which had been hardened by God, goes, Hebrews, get out. And the text says that the Hebrews literally took the treasure, the gold of Egypt, and they left Egypt. And they're getting led by Moses across the desert. And then all of a sudden, they come against the Red Sea. And they turn around, and there's Pharaoh's army. And in Exodus chapter 14, the people, God's chosen people, God's people that He has literally answered their prayers. He not only sent a deliverer, He delivered them. And they get to the face of the Red Sea, and they turn around and they see the army, and what happens? They look at Moses and go, 
Were there not enough tombs in Egypt that you brought us out here to die and bury us here? We were better off in Egypt in slavery. How foolish can you get? And what's Moses do? Stand by. Red Sea parts. Now here's something you need to remember. All of Israel followed him through the Red Sea and followed him into the wilderness. But not everybody followed that hotshot young new preacher named Joshua into the promised land. Because they were so focused on Moses and what Moses was doing and what Moses didn't do and what the 70 elders, thank God we only have 10 here, 70 elders of this wilderness campaign, what they were doing. They were so focused on the man that they refused to see God all the time throughout the wilderness. And then he brings Joshua because Moses even gets wrapped up in the humanistic mindset and messes up. God says, hey, I want you to strike that rock and water's going to gush forth to feed all the people. And Moses does it. And the people keep complaining. So what's God do? Says Moses, I want you to speak to the rock this time and water will gush forth and feed all of the people. But because Moses is so like Jesus, where Jesus comes down and like, you know, Luke 9, when he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration, I just revealed myself to all the disciples and all of my heavenly glory. And then I come down here and I heal a guy and the people keep barking at me. And Jesus says, and I quote, how much longer am I to be with you? Yeah, Jesus said that. Fact check me. Mount of Transfiguration. Keep reading the story. He's literally asking, how much longer do I have to be here? What's Moses do? How much longer do I have to deal with these people? And he disobeys God and he doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes it. And God says, you're not going into the Holy Land. Instead, I'm going to send Joshua. Everybody followed Moses out of slavery into the wilderness, but they didn't keep going into the promised land. Why? They were so focused on men that they couldn't see the will of the Father was taking place. God was using death. He was using starvation. He was using murder. All kinds of wicked things to what? Accomplish His will to get people out of Egypt. Jesus faced the same thing. He's standing before a group of men who apparently know the Scriptures better than anybody, who are wrapped up in their greed, who are jealous of Him, who think that we better kill this guy and it's better that one man die for Israel than for this dude to keep on going and the Roman occupation come in here and kill all of us. So we better lay him down and he is, he is standing before men who are prideful, who are greedy, who are self just, ugh, just makes you want to throw up. Drama queens. Oh, let me tear my, oh, he said blasphemy. It's like you want to push kick these guys through a door sometimes. You read that story and you go, he's just standing there. He's taken the brunt of it. The same thing that Moses did. Apparently, 
Not a whole lot had changed in 1,500 years of human history from the time Moses walked to the time Jesus walked. He endured all that. For you. It's so much more than the cross. And then he finally gets to the point where he says, I'm done. Are you Christ, the Son of the living God? Yes, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's all he says. He answers their question, and then he fires a warning shot. But it ends there. This is what is incredible to me. So calculated through this interrogation. They come to him and they say, they start hurling accusations, and he calls them out. He literally says, where are the witnesses? And he gets punched in the face for asking, where are the witnesses? And Jesus says, if I said something wrong, totally understand why you punched me. But if I've said nothing wrong, why do you strike me? You know what I gather from that text? Apparently Jesus wasn't too concerned about his tone. Let that sit. He doesn't say, well, I'm sorry. I, I, let me rephrase my question and let me say this a little more gently this time and then proceed. He simply asked, if I said something wrong, what did I say? Jesus is maybe a little bit different than you think, isn't he? He's pretty calculated. And then what do they do? They bring false witnesses and he's got to stand there and listen to people tell lies about him. You ever been there? People make accusations against him where it's like, this isn't true. I'm, this is ridiculous. And it, but the interesting thing is that in this whole story, you notice how the text said that none of their testimonies were adding up. None of them were in collaboration. It was just randomness. It wasn't good enough. And here he is standing before a wicked Sanhedrin that's no different than the people of Israel and how they treated Moses. And they say, are you the Christ? And he says, yes. And then he gives a preview. You'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And you go, oh, now things are starting to warm up. But he stops. That's it. That's all he gives. And then after that, silence. And it's like, Jesus, what, why didn't you... Like, keep going. Like, tell them more. He knew their hearts. He knew their hearts were hardened. He knew their hearts. And that's why he said in Matthew 13, I speak to people in parables because they'll ever be seeing but not perceiving. They'll be ever hearing but never understanding. For the heart of this people have grown dull. And therefore, I speak to them in parables. Jesus knew. I got nothing else to say. I got better luck uh, talking to that post and converting that post than these men. But for the believer, it doesn't end there. Jesus endured the absolute most wicked senses of mankind. A, a group of men so wrapped in greed, so wrapped in pride, so wrapped in jealousy, 
power grabbing. Make it, we got to be in charge. This guy's going to get mixed with their fear of the future. We don't know what this guy's going to cause us. Are we going to lose our fortune? Are we going to lose our power? Are we going to lose our authority? We better get this guy. Is this guy going to call? Fear of the future. They were so focused on the man that they couldn't see God working and that literally the God that they worshipped who wrote about Him coming, they couldn't see it because they were so focused on themselves. Can you see? Can you see how the Father is using all of this wickedness, all of this just disgusting things in life that we feel from other people we've been put in situations with our bosses with other people and it makes you feel sick jesus felt it too but jesus endured that to get to the cross god the father used all of this because he knew this is my way this is the way to be able to get my son to the cross the only way that Pharaoh is going to go, all right, Hebrews, get out, is if I lay down the plagues and I kill his firstborn. The only way that I can get my son to the cross is if he is put to death by the religious leaders whose hearts are equally as hardened. I am using the schemes of the devil to undo the works of the devil. To get my son to the cross so that he can conquer death and rise again. I am using disunity to bring about unity. I am using the disunity between a Sanhedrin, a group of religious leaders, and my son to bring unity with my son and the rest of the world. Can you see how the Father's orchestrating all things? But if you sit in your pew and all you see is what mankind does, you're still missing Him. Don't miss the Father's will in all things. And when it doesn't make sense to you, the sea will part. When it doesn't make sense to you, He will show up and He won't be afraid to show off. And it may be in a manner that you're not used to, that you don't like, that gets you outside of your proverbial box, but it's still God the Father willing it because He's got something for you. So don't ask when you're like Jesus and you're facing situations like this, don't ask, God, why are you doing this to me? Ask God, why are you doing this for me? You're doing this for me for your plan to bring glory to you. But in all of those things, you look at that and you go, that's what Jesus had to endure too? If that doesn't make you appreciate your Savior, then gang, I don't know what else to tell you. Like I said, there's the narrative. It's nasty. It's ugly. But God the Father was using it so that His Son could get to the cross for you. Can you see it? Can you? But here's the beauty. Jesus just gives him a preview. He doesn't even give him a preview. He just gives him a statement. For those of us who are in Christ, if you have a Bible, you have a preview. Oh, you've got a preview. It's found in Revelation 19. 
In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven. But in Revelation 19, where Jesus stopped before the Sanhedrin and said, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds and ends it there, he gives you, he gives the believer in Christ the rest of the story. Paul Harvey's, now you know, the rest of the story. And where so many people in this life are kind of like Roy Rogers saying, well, things aren't as good as they used to be. They never finish that sentence. Things aren't as good as they used to be, comma, and probably never was. They're so fearful of the future, but Christ gives us a hope for the future where He stopped with the Sanhedrin and said, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. He tells you exactly what's going to happen. And it's in Revelation chapter, chapter 19, in verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. Does John 1 ring a bell? In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The armies of heaven were following Him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh, He has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of the people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and their kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all of the birds gored themselves on their flesh. That's my kind of general. That's my kind of God. That's my kind of King of kings and Lord of lords. The same one who's coming at the end. Our future hope 
We have no fear for the future. We know what He's going to do. He's going to return. He will come on the clouds of heaven. And when He comes on the clouds of heaven, He's going to Spartan kick the atmosphere to earth and go, I'm back! And He's going to take us home. And the dead in Christ are going to rise. And everybody that rises up against Christ, the same way the Sanhedrin rose up against Him, the same way the people were against Moses, all of that's going to happen again. But this time, instead of being victim to it, He's going to be authoritative over it. And He's going to take you home. He's going to take us home. He's going to bring us. And I'm telling you, when you see the last days, when you see birds and animals gorging on the flesh of kings, God's not going to apologize for it. He endured too much suffering for you. He endured the pain not just of the cross and eternal separation of the Father. He endured the same things that you endure. He faced the same type of people that you face. He faced the same wickedness that you faced. But can you see it was the will of the Father for Him to face it so that He could get to the cross for you? Can you see it? If you can't, I will be right here in about 30 seconds. And I want you to come forward and I want to have a time to explain it to you. And maybe you're here this morning going, I need to make that decision. I'm ready to put my faith in Jesus. I believe that He's suffered for me and I'm ready to let the world know it. I will be right here. But some of you this morning, it just might be a simple gut check. Maybe it's just the gut check of I've fallen back into the yoke of religious slavery like Galatians 5.1 warns about. And I want to live in the freedom. And I want to trust God. I want to see God. I don't want to focus on men and decisions or whatnot. I want to focus on God and trust Him that it's His will working the same way it was His will to get His Son to the cross. So if you have a decision to make this morning, I'm down here. If you just want to get up this morning and say, you know what, I just want to pray. Altar's open. There ain't no judgment here. This is a judge-free zone. But I want us to sing this last song with every bit of, just every bit that we have. Because He is returning for you. Dear gracious God and Father, 